the whole scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is the story of Jesus. So we'll read part of that this morning. It says in your bulletin, Psalm 2, the reading will actually be from the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to begin with verse 12 and read through verse uh, 32. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Jesus is the Son of God. And uh, it doesn't startle us to hear that this morning because we as Christians, uh, we're familiar with that truth. And we follow a tradition that has affirmed that as a basic truth for 2,000 years. And yet all of the power and the significance of Christianity rests on that declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. But if you think for a second, you realize what a statement that is. 
that the only supreme, personal, infinitely glorious, holy, and eternal God has a son who is himself infinitely glorious and holy and eternal. I mean, that's revolutionary enough, but we go further. We say that this son is a poor, itinerant Jewish rabbi, son of a carpenter, who died a humiliating public death in the prime of his life, the ripe old age of 33. Doesn't that sound unusual to anybody? No other religion makes such a claim. Neither Buddhism nor Hinduism has the framework to even consider such a claim. And even Islam and Judaism, the other two great world religions that affirm one supreme personal God, to them, the idea of this God having a son is unthinkable. It's only us that says it. And it's such an outlandish claim that even those who think very highly of Jesus either refuse to believe it or try to color it differently. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is a created being. He's an angel. Mormons say that Jesus is God's biological son, begotten in the very same way and method that we are begotten of our parents. In other words, Jesus had a beginning and is not eternal. Skeptics claim that Jesus never claimed any sonship in any divine or absolute sense, but that we, his followers, ascribed sonship to him at a later date. And even within historical Christianity, there have been groups who have said that Jesus was just a man, but was granted divinity at his death or at his baptism or his resurrection, or that God made Jesus his son at some point along the way. But the idea that Jesus, this carpenter of Nazareth, who, if you had seen him, would have struck you as less than special, that this is the eternal Son of God. That's pretty far out there. We Christians, we say it. We affirm it. We declare it. I want to go quickly to three episodes in Jesus' life where his sonship was explicitly affirmed, not by the church, but by God himself. One is at his baptism, where we read this from Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's one episode. A similar thing happened very near the end of his ministry. Just before Jesus began to make his way toward Jerusalem and to his death, Jesus went up a mountain with three of his closest friends, Peter and James and John. And there he was transfigured. He was changed before their very eyes. They saw him for the first time, not just as rabbi or teacher or man or son of the carpenter, but they saw him in all his glory, brilliantly glowing. Moses and Elijah show up to talk to him. And the cloud of God's glory surrounds all of them. And the disciples are overwhelmed, even to the point of abject fear. And out of the cloud of God's glory, again comes the voice that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The third episode is Jesus' resurrection. You remember that in his suffering and his death, Jesus leaned into his relationship as a son to God his Father. Not my will, but yours be done, he said. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And his greatest pain on the cross came to him precisely 
because he had always known himself to be the beloved son of the father. And so the lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's almost as if even calling God father in that moment would have been too painful for him. But three days later, the resurrection, Jesus raised to life again by the power of God, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. God's raising Jesus to life is the definitive declaration by God that Jesus is the Son of God. It's God's vindication of Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his statements about himself, vindicated by God in Jesus' own resurrection. Baptism, transfiguration, resurrection. In addition to those three, I would point you to the whole Gospel of John to see that belief in Jesus as the Son of God or the theme of the book, the whole theme of the Gospel of John. In fact, John wrote his Gospel for this reason. He says this in chapter 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the book. And so we believe and declare that Jesus is the Son of God without beginning or end, but relating intimately and eternally to God as his Father. Great. And so we say, Amen. Yep, Son of God. We sing the appropriate songs of praise and worship and carry on. But wait a minute. Let's not just leave the phrase Son of God sitting there on our song sheets and our statements of faith. Because John, in the verse that I just read, said something pretty remarkable. I don't know if you caught it. He doesn't just say generically that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. He says that by believing something about Jesus, you may have life. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's a pretty crucial distinction, I think, to make. It's one thing to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's another thing to know who this Jesus is who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus once warned that there would be people who would say to him, we did all kinds of good things in your name. And Jesus' response to them would be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers, is his word. It's not just the doing and the not doing of certain things. It is knowing who Jesus is and living and acting out of that center. You get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. You get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. And to believe in the Gospel of John is to understand something to be true and to order your life accordingly. To rest the whole weight of your life on this thing that you understand to be true. And so we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That means that we rest the whole weight of our life, not just on Jesus generally, but on Jesus who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. And it is because Jesus is the Son of God that certain things have such meaning for us. Specifically, the reality that Jesus is the Son of God reveals something about our posture toward God, which I'll comment on briefly. And it reveals something about God's posture toward us. And that's the bulk of what I'd like to have us reflect on today. 
But first, our posture towards him, very quickly. Because Jesus is the Son of God, he is a worthy and appropriate object of our full devotion. If an angel had died for us, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, he would not be worthy of our full devotion and worship. And to worship him would be an act of idolatry because we'd be worshiping a created being. If Jesus was just a man who acquired divinity as a gift or as a reward or something, he would not be worthy of our full devotion and worship. For his deity would not be essential to his being, but would have come to him later. He would be finite, non-eternal, with a beginning, dependent on God for his existence. He would be less than God. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God, perfectly and eternally divine, co-equal, co-existent with the Father and the Spirit. As the Gospel of John says in its very first words, that he was both with God and was God. And so for us today, our response to Jesus, the Son of God, is to say, we belong to you. I exist for your glory and honor. For us to say that is right, it is good. To be enthralled by his perfection is right. To be filled with increasing awe and wonder as we know him more and more is natural. It's right. It's good. It's appropriate. It's healthy. It's normal. And so as Christians, we do a lot more than just consider Jesus an example. We do more than simply try to walk in the Jesus way or ask, what would Jesus do? We don't just admire Jesus from a distance or try to apply his teaching to our lives. We don't even say to him that everything I have is at your disposal. We say, rather, I don't have anything. It is all yours anyway. I am all yours. And so because Jesus is the Son of God, that is why it is appropriate for us as a church to say, we exist for him, to know him, to make him known. That's why it's appropriate for us to sing what we sing, to talk about surrendering to him. It's appropriate for us to have this fixation with him that we have had in these recent weeks and months. So that, quickly, is our posture towards him. Why his divine sonship has such meaning for us. But I... I didn't want to land there this morning and even expand on that an awful lot because that is something I think that isn't new to us. We know that's right. Jesus is worthy of our allegiance and our worship. But I want to talk this morning for the rest of our time about God's posture toward us. It is because Jesus is the Son of God that we can affirm that God is love. We can do that because Jesus is the Son of God. Love has been a part of God's essential being from and for eternity. Pastor and author Timothy Keller, some of you may have heard of him or read him, he points out that if God was unipersonal, not tripersonal in eternity, that is, if he wasn't Trinity, but was instead one person by himself, then the essence of God's nature would have been greatness or power or moral perfection, but it could not have been love. Because love is something that one person has for another. 
And if God had no love relationship before he created, then love is not essential to God and he could not have been loving from all eternity. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. But that God is Trinity, one God in an intimate community of three persons, Father and Son and Spirit. And that Jesus is this Son of the Eternal Father means that God has been love and has been loving from all eternity. It means that the biblical declaration that God is love is true, is grounded in something real. Love is who God is. But God is not only love generally. It's because Jesus is the Son of God that we can affirm God's great love for us personally. Or put it another way, I can only say with confidence, God loves me because Jesus is God's son. Let me explain what I mean. That God gave his son to die on the cross for our sins is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for us. Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his son. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible often links the death of Christ and the love of God and brings them together. We know that we're loved because Jesus died for us. Now, if God had commissioned one of his angels to die for us, again, not to knock the JWs, but as a a point of what some people say about Jesus, If God had commissioned an angel to die for us, or if God had chosen a human to die for the rest of us and then promoted that human to divinity, it would be hard for us to imagine God loving us. I love you so much that I'm going to have this person over here die for you. But that divinity himself came and died for us. That God the Father sent his son for us is a demonstration of love like the world has never seen before. This is what I read this morning from Romans chapter 8. This is verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, if God the Father gave his son for us, don't you think that there is nothing that he wouldn't do for us? If he paid the absolute and supreme sacrifice, don't you think that God's heart toward us is good? The full commitment of God to us is grounded in the fact that Jesus is the son of God, that it's the son of God who came to die. This reality of the love of God expressed on the cross, I always knew it, but it hit home for me when I became a dad. Especially after a couple of years when my son became a real person with personality and with whom I could interact. Well, you know, right? Babies, newborn, they're people, but you love them, but you don't relate back and forth with them. But I had a son and then another one And in my better days, I would like to think that I would lay down my life for you or for someone if it was needed. But there is no way, there is no way that I would give up my son for you. Not a chance. 
never happen. We read sometimes in the news of of terrible things done by people to other people, physical suffering inflicted on someone. We read sometimes of violence done in the name of justice in some countries. Some of you know what it means to be rejected by people or slandered or beaten up or to have your reputation destroyed. The pain of having someone you love hurt you deeply. Now, can you imagine, you who are parents, imagine, would you want your child to experience something that bad, something that horrific? No, you would, you would die to protect your child from those things. The thought of your child being wounded like that makes your heart sick, recoil. You would give yourself instead. And yet, in a way that I cannot even begin to understand, God the Father said, you know, even that I would do. Even that I would. I think the pain in my heart would be greater if I saw James suffer terribly than if I suffered terribly. And I think that God, in having his son die for us, experienced in his own heart the worst pain that you can ever imagine. A billion times more than the pain if we gave up our son because their relationship was perfect, eternal, intimate to a degree we can't even begin to imagine. But God the Father did that to his heart because his heart was set on you. Because he loves you. And so he was even willing to give his son And the divine sonship of Jesus reveals the personal love of God, the depth of his love for you. I want to to color that in a little bit. I want to do it first by noticing the love relationship between the Father and the Son. At Jesus' Baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, I don't know if you noticed that God didn't simply say, this is my son. What did he say? Remember? This is my beloved son. Now, he didn't have to say that. He could have just said, this is my son, and they would have got the point. But when the father looks at Jesus, this is my beloved son. I cannot tell you how, how much I, in my infinite and perfect and eternal heart, the love that I have for my son, he is my beloved John chapter 1, the word was with God. And we heard a couple weeks ago that 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 phrase in the language doesn't just mean kind of side by side. It's a face-to-face, personal, intimate connection. The word and God, face-to-face, intimacy. This was the Father and the Son. You have the love of Jesus, the Son, for his Father. The book of John, everything Jesus did, that Jesus did as a son. Chapter 5, Jesus said, my father's working, I'm working. Later in chapter 5, the father loves the son and shows him all that he's doing. Then the son does those things. Chapter 8, I honor my father. Chapter 10, I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know my father. Jesus, all through the gospel of John, is making references to himself as a son and to his father. I and the father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the father. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. All through the gospel of John, you see this. Every moment of Jesus' life, he was conscious of this connection with his father. It was intimate, it was permanent, it was so deep the love that they had for each other. 
And Jesus called God his father, which was unheard of, by the way. I don't know if we know that. Unheard of in first century Judaism. God was the father of Israel in the most general sense, but no individual addressed God as father. Nobody did that. Nobody spoke about God as his own personal father. And in fact, for Jesus to do that was considered so outrageous that on one occasion, the people were actually going to stone him for saying that God was his father. And at Jesus' trial, it was his affirmation that he was the son of the blessed one that led to his death sentence. And we haven't even spoken of the Holy Spirit yet this morning because the Trinity is not the scope of this message. But the, the intimate community of relationship on which all other relationships are patterned, parenting, friendship, marriage, I mean, all, of, all of the relationships that we enjoy, at their very, very best, they're only dim reflections of the perfect love and the intimacy of the relationship within the Trinity, the Father and Son and Spirit. So deep is their communion with one another that they are, in fact, one God. And so three persons, but we call God he and not they. So that's our starting place. Now, from the depth of eternal, intimate, perfect, joy-giving love between the persons of God and of the Father for the Son, now, remember the text that I read earlier. Romans 8 rejoices, really, at length about the awesome realities of what it means to be a Christian. One of those realities, in verses 5 and onward, is the privilege and the responsibility that is ours of having the very Spirit of God in us as a new source of wisdom and power for life. And then in verse 14 to 17, it takes the language of sonship, but doesn't apply it to Jesus. applies it to us. Listen again to verses 14 to 17. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are sons and daughters of God. If you are a Christian, then what is true of Jesus in terms of his relationship as a son to his father is true of you. How about that? The very same love that God has for Jesus, God has for you. The very same intimacy and nearness enjoyed by God and Jesus will be our eternal experience. Jesus taught us to pray and address God as Father, as Dad, which is what Abba means. In our eternal future, the glory awaiting us is the glory of sonship and daughtership. Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The revelation of the children, the sons of God. Verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know what that's saying? We're going to be like the son, and we're going to be like his brothers with the father as our father. The goal towards which God is moving us is a relational goal of sonship and daughtership to the father. That means that you are God's beloved. That means that God is well pleased with you. How many of you know that God is pleased with you? How many of you are still trying to get him to be pleased with you? You are his beloved, and he is pleased with you. 2 Peter chapter 1, this incredible phrase that we are partakers or participators in the divine nature. We don't, we don't become gods, but we participate fully in this relational dynamic that characterizes the Trinity. And we don't experience it fully right now from our direction toward God, though we get tastes of it, I think, because we're still weak, but we do experience it from God toward us. All of God's love and fondness and acceptance, I mean, his love for us is so profound, there is nothing that gets in the way of it coming our direction. And the goal towards which he is moving us is the full redemption and the revelation of us as sons of God where we too will fully engage on our end in that same love that God has for us and that God has for his son. I mean, that is, that is a stunning truth that when God sees Jesus and God sees you, his posture towards the two is exactly the same. And if Jesus is the son of God, that says something about us because we are in Christ, the scripture says. And until that time when the full redemption of all things takes place, and we, for the first time, really feel it fully, we have it, but we don't feel it now fully. Until that time, a couple of implications for us. First and most obviously, know that you are loved as a child of God. If you are a Christian, which means if you have trusted Jesus' death on the cross as the perfect, as the only means by which your sins are forgiven, if you've understood again that life is only rightly lived under the lordship of God, then God looks at you and relates to you in the very same way that he looks at and relates to Jesus himself. All God's love, all God's delight as a father to his children, God's full acceptance. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son, he says. With you, I am well pleased. That's the first implication, and that's hard enough, I think, for us to get a hold of. Secondly, it has implications in our relationships with each other, doesn't it? For we are children of one father. And the love into which we have been drawn also characterizes our relationships with each other. Jesus prayed this very thing for us just before he died. John chapter 17, he said, Father, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Later, I made known to them your name, I'll continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be 
in them. The very same love relationship that characterizes the Trinity that we experience from God and with God is the very same love that should characterize the people of God and our relationships with each other. Jesus isn't just praying that we'll be nice to each other, but that the divine Trinitarian love will increasingly characterize the children of God. And the third implication of Jesus as the Son has to do with anyone here who is not a Christian. And that might be you this morning. Jesus said that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That means in order to be in a healthy and right relationship with God, to be in good standing with God, requires the honoring of the Son, Jesus. He who has the Son has life, says in 1 John. Jesus said, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And he even said in John 8, if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. If you want to be right with God, if you want God to be in your world in any meaningful way, then you've got to deal with Jesus. You've got to know who he is. You've got to understand his, relation to, his relationship to his Father, the reality of Jesus' own death for your sins. To be right with God requires honoring the Son. And, uh, and if that's you this morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, then uh, you need to come and talk to somebody that you trust, somebody here. Come talk to me. We can talk more fully about that and introduce you to Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, I make no apology for saying you need to be. You need to be. You've got to get right with Jesus in order to be right with God. The reality that Jesus is the Son of God reveals, really, the reality of the love of God in his very nature, the love of God for us, and our love for each other. It's all rooted in the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal, perfect, divine Son of God. Let's pray.